Our Father, we thank You for the faithfulness of Your Word. Your Word is faithful because You are faithful. Your Word is trustworthy because You are trustworthy. Your Word is unchanging because You are unchanging. Your Word is holy and right because You are holy and right. Your Word gives direction because You give direction. Your Word, Father, is the means by which we might know You. Your Word is further the means by which we might be transformed into the likeness of our Savior by the Spirit of God. And so would you take this word that we have before us this morning, give us confidence in you, hope in you, transformation into your likeness. We are a needy people. If the last four months have demonstrated nothing else, it has demonstrated that we are not self-sufficient, we are not self-created, we are not autonomous, we are needy, we are dependent. And praise your name. You are, as we have just sung, everything we need. And so would you guide us in understanding that? Would you give us hope in that truth as we look at your word? We pray in the name of Christ for his glory and exaltation. Amen. In the book of Romans, as you know, the Apostle Paul is establishing himself as having credibility to the Roman believers because he wants to take a trip to Spain. And in going to Spain, he wants the Roman church to serve as his base of operation from which he might venture into Spain, not only logistically, but also financially. And so he has written the Romans a letter demonstrating to them his credibility in the gospel and his faithfulness to the biblical truth of what the gospel is. And he has laid out for the Romans in very systematic manner man's need for salvation because of man's sinfulness, God's provision of salvation. Man's sinfulness is in the first three chapters. Uh, God's salvation is in chapters three and four. God's process of sanctification, chapters 5 through 8, God's sovereignty and salvation, chapters 9 through 11, and then from chapters 12 through 16, he'll lay out how man responds to the salvation that God has given us. This is, um, this is the pinnacle, as I've already mentioned, of Paul's theological treatise in Romans chapter 11. It is, it is this chapter which summarizes for us Paul's teaching on the sovereignty of God in salvation. And as he thinks about God's sovereignty in salvation, he is thinking particularly about God's sovereignty over the nation of Israel and Israel's relationship to salvation. That's not a small question because Israel had rejected Jesus Christ as being the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 12... Jesus had laid himself out as being the Messiah and the religious leaders had made an unwavering declaration that Jesus Christ was not only not the Messiah, but he was of Beelzebub, he was from the pit of hell, he was ruled by Satan, an emissary of Satan. They could not have denounced him in any stronger terms. And in light of their rejection of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 and the subsequent rejections that we see of Israel as the gospel begins to spread through the book of Acts, the question has to, has to be asked, if Israel has so unequivocally rejected the Messiah, has God given up on the nation of Israel? Has, has God turned his back on the Jews? And in Romans chapter 11, Paul unequivocally states that God has not given up on Israel, that God is faithful to His promise to Israel that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. He has not changed. He is not wavering. He is unrelenting in His desire to be faithful to the nation of Israel. That faithful character of God is an encouragement to us. And just as an aside... It's an encouragement to us every day. It's always encouraging to be reminded that God is a faithful God. He is a bulwark. He is a rock. He is stable. He is steadfast. He is unchanging in all of His ways. 
But friends, isn't it particularly encouraging these days of COVID-19 that God is faithful in everything He is doing God is unrelenting in His faithfulness to His people. He is unrelenting in His faithfulness to Himself. He is a faithful God. So what about Israel? And what about the church? And what should we think about Israel? And what should we think about God's promises to Israel? This morning as we look at Romans chapter 11... And I just caught my first typo. That's Romans 11, 17 to 24, not 11 to 16. Uh, this morning, as we look at this passage, we're going to find this. That God's covenant with Israel is both a warning and an encouragement to believers. God's faithfulness is a warning and an encouragement. As we, as we see God's faithfulness to God's people, we will be warned and we will be encouraged. As we come to this passage, we're going to be reminded about the premise of Paul in Romans chapter 11, and that is that the hardening of individual Israelites does not negate God's promise to national Israel. So, so God made a promise to the nation of Israel as far back as Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And despite the fact that individual Israelites along the way have rejected God, have been disobedient to the law, and then have rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that does not mean that God has given up on the nation of Israel, that God will not fulfill His promises to the nation of Israel. In fact, as we come to Romans chapter 11, verse 2 might actually serve as kind of a thesis statement or a theme of this chapter. He asked the question in verse 1, Has God rejected His people Israel? He answers it in verse 1, May it never be. And then he unequivocally makes this statement in verse 2, the theme of the chapter, God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. God has not rejected them. God has not given up on them. God has not changed His plan in relation to them. He is as faithful to them today. He is as faithful to them uh, in the day of Paul as he was in the day that he made the promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And that theme that he states so clearly in verse 2 runs all the way through this chapter. In verse 5, there is at the present time a remnant. There are people who always believe, who are demonstrating God's, God's promise to the nation of Israel. They did not fall. They did not sin in such a way as to lead them out of God's blessing. That's verse 11. That's what we saw last week. There will still be a fulfillment of God's promises to them. That's verse 12, which we also noted last week. The hardening of the Israelites was indeed for the promise of, or for the fulfillment of bringing Gentiles into the promise. That's verse 25. We'll see that next week. And the deliverer will come and he will take away their sins and he will show them mercy such that he can say again unequivocally, verse 26, so all Israel will be saved. Again, you just can't get much clearer than that. So Paul is, is unrelenting in defending God's faithfulness to the covenant people of Israel, which, which leads us to the exaltation that he gives in verses 33 to 36. Is it any wonder that he explodes in such a benediction of praise because God has been so faithful to his people? That's the premise. Even though individual Israelites have rejected God, their hardening, their rejection does not negate God's promise to the nation of Israel. As we look at this passage, verses 17 to 24, let us think about Israel. Let us consider Israel, first of all, and be warned. Let us consider Israel and be warned. And we're going to see three warnings in these verses 17 to 22. The first is salvation is always a reason to remember humility. Salvation is always a reason to remember humility. Notice verse 17. Speaking about the individual Israelites, he says, if some of the branches 
are broken off. And with that, he reminds us that there are individual Israelites within the nation that are broken off. He's referring to those that we've already seen in previous weeks, verses 7 to 10, those individuals who rejected Jesus Christ. They were hardened and they were condemned for their sin. But notice, notice the apostle in in identifying that there are individual Israelites who have been broken off, expresses that with a measure of grace. Notice what he says, verse 17, some of the branches were broken off. Interestingly, might we, might we actually say what the reality is? Almost all the Israelites were broken off, weren't they? Because almost all the Jews rejected Jesus Christ. Not just many, but most of them rejected the Messiah. Most of them turned their way. In fact, that's the whole history of the nation of Israel all through the Old Testament. But Paul, in saying some of the branches, not only is softening it by a means of grace and saying, um, not everybody... But he is reminding us that there is still a remnant of believing Israel. When he says some, he is reminding us that not all. He is reminding us that there is a remnant. He is reminding us that God is being faithful to the nation of Israel. He also reminds us that that the covenant is not removed from the nation of Israel. Notice what he says at the end of the verse the Jew, excuse me, the Gentiles are grafted into the rich root of the olive tree. So the olive tree remains. The root remains. The root is not dug up and removed. One of the things that I'm going to do this afternoon is finish up a large task that Regine has had in our vegetable garden, and that is we'd had several trees that were non-fruit bearers. And you know what you do with a non-fruit bearing tree, don't you? You pull out the chainsaw. And so we got rid of two plum trees and a peach tree awaits being taken out later this year. And, uh, and one of the things I did in that process is I just cut, cut off right at the base. So there's just the smallest of stump. And Regine looked at that and said, you know, I'd really not like to have anything growing up out of that. Can we take out the stump? And so I've taken out a number of stumps already. And there is one large stump awaiting me yet this afternoon uh, where I'm going to go out and take out that last stump. Friends, that has not happened to Israel. The stump remains There are branches yet that are coming out of the promises that were made to Abraham. And we know that this is talking about Israel when he talks about the olive tree. It's it's fitting that he would talk about olive trees. I mean, olive trees were dominant in the Mediterranean area. And so for, for Paul to talk about an olive tree would be as normal for The Israelites is talking about a live oak tree in Texas. But he's talking about something more than just a commonly used or a commonly known tree. He's talking about a tree that is closely identified with the nation of Israel. So that in Hosea 14, when God talks about the nation of Israel, God calls her, calls him in that instance, an olive tree. And so Israel is identified as an olive tree. It's a picture of the nation of Israel. When he talks about the root of the olive tree, he's talking about the covenantal relationship that God has with the nation of Israel. Now notice, as Paul comes to this teaching about the Gentiles' relationship to the covenant of Israel and our relationship to Israel, He does note two realities. If some of the branches were broken off, and when he uses the word if, he doesn't mean like if and maybe they were, but he means if and since. So they really have. These things really have come about. So since some of the branches were broken off, that's one reality. 
Some branches, some individuals, some Jews have not experienced the full blessings of God through the covenant. And then there's a second reality. You, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. When he, when he says, and you, now he's shifting. He's not talking about the Jews, but now he's talking about the Roman readers, and they are largely a Gentile audience. And so he says, you, that is, you Gentiles, have been grafted in among them. Now, commentators have gone on at some length about Paul's misunderstanding of basic horticultural principles. And I will acknowledge, first and foremost, I am not a horticulturist, I am a lawnmower. That's the extent of my horticultural abilities. Regine is the one that knows everything in our family about trees and growing things. And, you know, I, I have a brown thumb. I can kill anything. I can mow over anything just about. And if I can't mow it, I can chainsaw it down. That's, that's my job. So I don't know anything about horticulture. But I am told that poor Paul has just completely misunderstand how grafting works. So that you don't take a wild branch and grafted into a cultured tree, but actually you do the reverse. But you take a cultured branch, and you graft it into a wild tree to make the wild tree produce cultured fruit. But Paul is not misunderstanding. In fact, if you just go down to verse 24, Paul acknowledges that part of what he's been talking about is is not the way it actually works in the real world. He says, verse 24, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. In other words, Paul's saying in verse 24, I know that this is not the way it works. I know you don't take a wild branch and, and graft it into the cultured tree. But Paul's just using... The idea about grafting and putting two things together in a general sense. And he's not, he's not talking about all the particulars about horticulture. This isn't a science textbook on botany. And so Paul is just saying, just bear with me and just follow the train of thought and follow the main ideas that I'm trying to make with this illustration. And what is Paul trying to demonstrate in verse 17? What he is demonstrating is that Gentiles do not supplant Israel. But in fact, notice what he says. They don't supplant Israel, but they are grafted in among them. In other words, they don't replace Israel, but they come alongside Israel. They are among believing Israelites. So not all Israelites are removed from the promises of Abraham because some do believe. And then Gentiles are grafted in to participate among them. And and so Gentiles don't supplant Israel. They're among them. Gentiles also don't supplant Israel. But notice also he says they are partakers with them. They are partakers. They They fellowship together with the nation of Israel. They have communion together. Together they have been saved into one common kind of salvation. Further, he says, Gentiles do not supplant Israel, but they are like believing Jews connected with them to the rich root of the olive tree. That that word rich is actually kind of interesting. It's a word that denotes fatness. Now, that's not typically a word that you think about in relation to uh, an olive tree. Fatness is what you think about, like the steak that I ate last night. It has fat on it, and it is rich uh, with, with fatness. And we love that marbling that runs through the steak. And a couple of you are nodding your heads, and that's the amen, right? But that's the word that Paul uses here. In other words, there's a richness, there's a fatness, if you will, that comes out of the root of God's promises to the nation of Israel. And Gentiles partake of that with believing Israelites. 
And so the apostle here is speaking about two realities. Some individual Israelites, even many, do not participate in the blessings of the covenant because they have rejected Christ as the Messiah. And then the second reality is the Gentiles are given a gift of salvation to experience the covenant blessings. And since both those things are true, notice Paul's warning in verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. In fact, it's not just do not, it's stop it. In other words, you've already cultivated arrogance towards the nation of Israel. You need to stop that kind of arrogance. That word arrogant has a sense of, of triumph and victory. It has a sense of we're greater than you. We, we have defeated you. We're supreme over you and have supremacy over you. Isn't there a temptation to be prideful of our salvation? And there, in the instance of Gentiles and in the instance of the church at Rome at least, there is a particular temptation for spiritual pride and ethnic hatred against the Jews because some have rejected. And Paul says, do not be arrogant. Why? Why don't be arrogant? Because the only way the Gentile receives salvation is to be connected to the promise that is made to Abraham and to be grafted into the root that belongs to Israel, that rich root. And if the root is still standing, it and it alone is the source of spiritual life, not just for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. The only reason, brothers and sisters, that we have salvation is because God has been gracious and placed us into and underneath and alongside the promises that were made to the nation of Israel. Don't be arrogant. And don't be arrogant, he also notes, verse 18, because if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. And I've noted, I'm not a horticulturist, but even I know that 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 a root does not get its strength from the branches. The branches get its strength from the root. The root is what takes in the nutrients and dispenses it to the branches. The branches don't get the nutrients and send it down to the root. And that is the way it is for the believer in Jesus Christ, Jew or Gentile. Everything we have is in the root of the promises that were made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 12. And ultimately, every believer is dependent on that promise. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 4? I know that was a long time ago. But Romans chapter 4, verse 16, For this reason, it, that is salvation, is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, that is Israelites, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Jew and Gentile. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. What didn't exist? The wild branch on its own, apart from the promises of God, doesn't have life in its own until it has cut off that wild that wild tree and grafted into the promises of Abraham and now it has life. Oh friends, contemplation of our salvation should always lead us to humility. No one is saved because he is great or worthy. Everyone is saved because he is needy and dependent. Everyone is saved by grace and grace is given only to the needy not to the self, not to the self-sufficient. That was true of Israel, and that is true of us as Gentiles. Oh, brothers and sisters, let salvation lead you to remember your humble state before God. Never be arrogant, never be proud, always be humble. There's another warning that's given to us in these verses. That's in verses 19 to 21. Salvation is always a means to remember fear. Salvation is always a reason to remember fear. 
Some might object to what the apostle has just said. He acknowledges that in verse 19. You will say then, but Paul, that's my insertion, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Paul, you know that branches were taken away so that unbelieving Israelites were taken away for the very purpose of putting us in. In other words, we are exalted. We are great. God took away Israel to give us a blessing. In fact, that little phrase in the middle, the purpose clause, so that I might be grafted in, just runs straight at the heart of pride and arrogance. It's all about me. It's all about, it's all about my position. It's all about my greatness. Ironically, even, even the way the objection is given acknowledges that not all Israel is taken away. Notice what it says. Branches were broken off. It doesn't say the branches as if all the branches were taken away, but it merely says branches as in some of the branches were taken away. So even the objection points to the fact that, that Israel still has the covenantal promises of God. Paul responds to the objection, verse 22, quite right. That, that's true. And the inference is as far as it goes. In other words, what you've said is true in part, but it doesn't quite go far enough. And, and Paul recounts how it is true. They, it is true. They, they were broken off for their unbelief. They, they did not believe in the promise of the coming Messiah by faith. They, they rejected Jesus and the Messiah. That's true all through the Gospels. We see that. We see the culmination in Matthew chapter 12. It is also true that where unbelieving Israel did not believe, did not have faith, he says, but in contrast, you stand by your faith. That is, you have faith. The faith that Israel did not have, you do have. And, and you are believing in the Messiah. You are standing by faith. Your, your faith alone is saving you. And we, we saw the necessity of salvation by grace through faith alone. We see that through uh, chapters 3 and 4 of this great epistle. But then notice Paul's conclusion. Do not be conceited. But fear. Again, he, he doesn't just say, don't be conceited. He actually says, stop being conceited. In other words, they're already engaging in conceit. And again, as he said in verse 18, he says, stop this conceitedness. Stop this arrogance. They, they should stop cultivating attitudes of mind that are arrogant and proud. Says one commentator, to trust in God and to be proud of one's spiritual achievement are mutually exclusive. You cannot trust and have faith. You cannot go to God and say in faith, you must save me because I cannot, and also be proud at the same time, as if it's my position, it's my greatness, it's my exaltedness. Frankly, that's what got Israel in trouble. And Paul says you you can't have both at the same time. Instead of being conceited, they should fear. In fact, not only does he say, but fear, but it's a present tense, which means they should continually fear. Their, their whole manner of life should be a continual state of fear. And while he doesn't articulate it in verse 21, 20, verse 21 makes it clear that when he says fear, he means for for Gentiles to fear God, right? Because he says, if God did not spare the natural branches, in other words, if God treated Israel in a particular way, he's going to treat you in a particular way. So you need to be fearful of God. You need to, you need to be fearful of him. They should fear God because if God cut off individual Israelites, and if he did that to people who were covenanted with him, what will he do with those who are not covenanted he cut them off and if he cut off unbelieving israelites then he will not hesitate to cut off unbelieving gentiles also do not be arrogant do not be proud if he is willing to pour out his wrath on israel he is willing also to condemn unrighteous gentiles he will not save gentiles as an entire entity, he will not, he will not have the church to replace national Israel, and he is unafraid to cut off any 
who do not believe, just as he was unafraid to cut off unbelieving Israelites. That reality should lead us to live in a fearful reverence of God. Salvation, my brothers and sisters, is always a, rem- always a reason to remember fear. There's a third warning in these verses. It's verse 22. Salvation is always a, re- a reason to remember grace. Salvation is always a reason to remember grace. Because it is true that God has broken off unrighteous Jews and He can and will break off unrighteous Gentiles from the promise of Abraham, He says that we who are Gentiles should think in a particular way. Notice verse 22. Behold then, see, look. And He doesn't just mean see and look. He means consider, think about, meditate on this reality. And his conclusion is that we should consider two realities of God. Look at the kindness of God and the severity of God. Look at the kindness of God. That is, His goodness and His generosity to people who are undeserving of that generosity. It is His patient kindness that leads to the salvation of undeserving people. It is that same principle that is given in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do not think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. In other words, it is God's kindness that leads you to repentance. So think on that and meditate on that and move towards repentance. Because it's that kindness, that goodness that is undeserved that God is granting to you so that you would be repentant. So think on, meditate on His kindness, but then also behold, look at, think on His severity. That that word severity is... A word that's used very infrequently in the New Testament. It has something of the idea of cut off or or cut short. And it clearly is a reference to God's wrath and God's condemnation. And notice on whom that severity fell. To those who fell, they experienced God's severity. To those to those who rejected Christ as Messiah, they experienced the severity of God, the wrath of God, the condemnation of God. That's obviously a reference to the nation of Israel. And who received His kindness? To you, you Gentiles, who didn't deserve His kindness, who didn't merit His kindness, who didn't work for His kindness, but received it nonetheless. And these two attributes, God's kindness and God's severity, which seem to be at times in opposition with each other, actually work in harmony together. It's appropriate to think of these attributes together because we are tempted to think about ourselves as worthy of God's kindness. Of of course He was kind to me. I mean, do do you really know who I am? Of course He was kind to me. No, it's not that I merit His kindness. It is that I've been given His kindness out of grace. And I need to remember along with His kindness, His severity. That is, I need to remember that I deserved nothing but His wrath. I deserve nothing but His condemnation. He should have been wrathful against me. But He was kind to me anyway. Friends, this is a reminder that our experience of salvation is always by grace alone. It is never by merit. And we never merit grace in any way. Grace is always unexpected. It's unexpected grace. It's unusual grace. And it is unlimited in its kindness to us. This reminder of God's grace should also remind us about the necessity of Continuing to live by faith. Notice what he says in verse 22. To you, you have received God's kindness if you continue in his kindness. And he does not mean by that that you need, you need to work on your salvation in such a way that you will merit your salvation. No, when, when we have salvation by grace through faith, it is just that we have it, right? 
So Romans 8, verse 30, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. If you get in the chain at the beginning, you will stay in it all the way through the end. If you have this salvation, you have this salvation. And he's not talking about meriting, earning, or keeping yourself in salvation. What he is talking about is, you say you have salvation. Well, let's see if that salvation really is demonstrated. Because if you, if you have the kindness of God on your life, you will live that kindness of God. There is a fruit that comes out of your life that is indicative that the Spirit of God has saved you. So, so you say, You have experienced God's kindness? Well, then let's see if you continue in that kindness as a demonstration that, yes, you're really in the chain. Because your salvation is dependent not on you. It is dependent on the work of Christ. And it is a gift of His kindness But if you are not in that kindness, he is unafraid to show you severity. So let's watch. Let's see if you're really experiencing what you have. This is a warning, friends, about not living with and for Jesus Christ. If we do not live with him, if we do not live for him, It is demonstration that we are not in him. And notice the end of verse 22. You will be cut off. Again, if if God is unafraid to pour out his wrath on unbelieving Jews, he is unafraid to pour out his wrath on unbelieving Gentiles. So you say you're in? Well, let's see what the fruit of your life really is. And if you are genuinely in. So in verses 19 to 22, the apostle is reminding Gentiles to humbly remember the grace that they received to save them. And then he is also reminding them to live out that grace as a demonstration of the life that they have within them. So consider Israel and be warned. Consider Israel and be warned. And then... Oh, friend, consider Israel and be encouraged. This is verses 23 and 24. Israel can and will be grafted back into God's promises. There's a, there's a corresponding reality to the warning that God could cut off unbelieving Gentiles, and that is that he can also graft in believing Israelites if they repent and turn to him in faith. And, And that's why we actually read Hosea 14 at the beginning of the worship service this morning because that's the very thing that he's talking about. That when they repent as a nation, he will graft them back in and they as a nation will receive the promises that were given to Abraham. Notice verse 23. And they also, corresponding to your belief and corresponding to your unbelief that will lead to your condemnation... They also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, that is, if they repent and they turn in faith to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Their condition of unbelief, their condition of individuals being rejected is not a permanent condition for the nation. The permanent condition for the nation is that they will be grafted back in. We'll see this very clearly next week. Again, all Israel, verse 26, will be saved. And Paul says... This is what God is able to do. It is not beyond God's ability. It is not beyond God's grace to redeem unbelieving Israel. This is the gospel power of God. Remember chapter 1, the theme of the book of Romans. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So 
So it came to go to the Jews and God will fulfill his promises to the nation of Israel. He is able to do it. He will do it. And, and along with saving the nation of Israel, he will also save Gentiles in that process as well. Oh, the unbelief of Israel to date has been a tremendous tragedy. But that unbelief is not greater than God's power to save Israel. God is not helpless against Israel's rebellion. He will do what he has promised to Abraham. There's a second encouragement that we are to find in verse 24. And that is that Israel will not be cut off. Paul uses the grafting illustration one last time. He says Gentiles were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree. And then contrary to to nature, contrary to the way that you normally do grafting, they were grafted into um, the cultivated olive tree. And if God can do that with Gentiles, if God can do what is contrary to nature to save Gentiles, then he can also do the saving of the Israelites by grafting them back into the promises of the root of the tree of Israel, the promises that were given in the covenant to Abraham. He can take Israel that was cut off and put them back in to the promises that were given to Abraham. If he could do the saving of the Gentiles, notice what he says, how much more can he do for his covenant people? How much grace awaits Israel if we as Gentiles have received so much grace from God? Paul does not mean that Israel deserves God's grace. But he does mean, as one writer says, that they retain the stamp of their origin. They're connected to the rich root the promise of the covenant that was given to Abraham, they are still part of the tree of his covenant and he is powerful to reconnect them as a nation to that root. Yes, Israelites have been cut off from the blessings of God, but one day, one day the nation will be redeemed as a nation. They will yet receive the promises that God made to them. Of that, they And we can be sure God has not failed. Yes, Israel has sinned. Yes, individual Israelites have been cut off. But God is faithful. God will keep his promises to his people, Israel. As we think about this passage, it can seem a little bit disconnected from what we are and who we are. So let's let's make sure we get some lessons learned out of this, okay? One is, there is one tree of salvation. To believe in Jesus, the Messiah, is the only way of salvation. There's one root. There's one promise that is made to Abraham, that there will be one nation, one leader of that nation, One redeemer that comes to that nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through that. There's there's one way to salvation and salvation is always by grace through faith. That was true of Abraham. It is true of Israel. It is true of every Gentile who will believe. Again, Romans chapter 4 verse 11 Speaking about Abraham, he received the sign of the circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be credited to them and the father of circumcision to those who are who not only are of the circumcision, but those who follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. There's one way to salvation. It is to believe in the Messiah, even as Abraham believed in the coming of the Messiah. Jew, 
Gentile all come to one salvation through Jesus Christ. There's one tree of salvation. Secondly, we have no reason for pride in our salvation. We deserve one thing, brothers and sisters. Hell. That is all. We deserve nothing else. And if we avoid hell, it is only because of the grace of God. It is only because of His kindness. We merit severity. In His amazing grace, He sometimes gives us kindness. We should never weary of resting in that, of delighting in that, of trusting in that. Third, ethnic hatred against Israel is sin. Not just ethnic hatred of Israel, but ethnic hatred is sin. Because ethnic hatred, whether it's of Israel or anyone else, says, I'm better, I'm more exalted, I am privileged, I have status. And friends, we are not better than the Israelite. We are just as dependent on God's grace as they are. And friends, they are not dependent on us. They are dependent on the Messiah, even as we are on the Messiah. And frankly, if anyone is dependent on anyone else, we are dependent on them because we only receive the promises granted to the Messiah through the nation of Israel. They're not dependent on us. We are dependent on them, like them, to trust in the Messiah. God is gracious, but He is also wrathful and willing to exercise His wrath. Don't ever mistake His silence for His reticence to condemn sinners. He is sometimes silent. He does sometimes wait. That's chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. But the reason He waits is not because He doesn't care about sin, but because He is waiting for you to repent. And friend, if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, if you have not repented of your sin, if you have not turned to Christ in faith, oh friend, God cares deeply. He is not afraid to pour out severity of His wrath against you. He's just being patient for a season. But there is a time when that patience will end. And when it ends, there will be severity. So the best thing, the only thing, the wise thing for you to do is to repent today, to trust today that Jesus is the Messiah that can remove your sin, wash you, cleanse you, and grant you eternal and infinite life. God is gracious, but He's also wrathful and willing to exercise His wrath. There are implications of receiving God's kind salvation. He doesn't save us so that we can continue in our sin. He saves us so that we will be transformed from our sin. Remember what he said in chapter 6? When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. That is, you couldn't do righteous things. So what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin through Christ and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Oh, friend, you have been freed from sin so that you can be not enslaved to sin anymore, but enslaved to Jesus Christ and live for Jesus Christ and live for His glory. So, so don't use your salvation as a, as a means to indulge in sin, but use your salvation as a means to indulge in righteousness. Then lastly, never give up on those who do not yet believe, Jew or Gentile. Did you, did you hear verse 23? God is able to graft them in again. God has the power 
God is sufficient. God is capable of grafting unbelievers back into the promises that he made to the nation of Israel. He is able to graft in unbelieving Gentiles contrary to the promises that they had received. And he is able to graft back in the nation of Israel into those promises that they had received. He is able to do both. Oh, brothers and sisters, we all have family who do not yet believe. We all have loved ones who have not trusted Christ. We all have loved ones who have rejected Christ, who have spat on Christ's name and are walking in willful disobedience and rebellion against Him. Friend, that person, God is able to graft them in again. Do not give up. Their, their sentence is not over. There is an opportunity. They can repent. God has capability. Trust Him Believe Him for that and continue to be faithful with the gospel to those who do not yet believe, trusting that God can graft them in yet. Our Father, we thank You for the hope of this passage that You are able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything that we might imagine. You can save You will save the nation of Israel yet. And you can save unbelieving Gentiles also. This is your grace. This is your infinite power to change the heart of the most rebellious sinner. Thank you, Father, for a reminder this morning of your faithfulness, your grace, and your unexpected, powerful grace and mercy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.